I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Martin Industries. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Invaders podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin-Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. The durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Vincennes, Indiana no-tiller Ray McCormick is used to doing things differently, so it may come as no surprise that he's among the 1% of cover croppers who seed covers at harvest with his combine. He also has an unusual approach to soil drainage in that he's more interested in preserving and restoring wetlands than installing tile drainage for farming. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Ray McCormick about how his approaches to conservation and farming intersect. Join us as they discuss how he got the idea to seed covers with an air seeder attached to his combine header, finding the value in buying and selling land, embracing mistakes while planting green, how no-till and covers help mitigate the challenges of farming bottomland, and why he recently went on a two-week hunger strike to preserve Indiana wetlands. We're with Ray McCormick this morning in southern uh, Indiana. Tell us a little history of the farm and what you're doing with no-till cover crops, etc. Okay, I live on top of a hill where my great-grandfather lived, so my son will make the fourth generation to live here and farm here. I'm 100% no-till. I like to call it never-till because we never till the ground. There you go. Uh, And 100% cover crops that I put on all of it with seeders on my combine heads. So it's a real efficient and effective way. We also have about 60 head of uh, Flecky Simmental cattle. So we bale uh, the nitro mix, the 60% annual ryegrass, 40% crimson clover. We bale that up and, and feed our cattle. So we keep them pinned up in the summertime and uh, feed them hay and then run them on the cover crops in the winter and spring. And then we've got a duck hunting operation, so we flood some fields and leave some corn standing. And then I do construction work, mainly wetland restoration with uh, construction equipment. So uh, we keep very busy, but it's what I love to do, and it's fun to farm. So how many acres are involved in this operation? It's it's around 2,500 of pasture uh corn and soybeans maybe 25 of it is pasture 50 50 corn and beans we try to rotate we got a lot of river bottom ground so sometimes we get flooded out and it's pouring this morning but the rivers are going to stay in their banks so far um and uh, you know we've got rolling lust 
So we've got big hills and river bottoms, and we've got sand, and we've got heavy ground. So it's a it's a really uh, dynamic, beautiful, but varied soil types and varied terrain that we farm. Sure. You talked about uh, seeding cover crops with a seeder mounted right on your combine, and our recent survey of cover crop users shows less than 1% of them are, are doing that. And you've been doing it for a long time. Can you elaborate on that just for a minute? You know, I was trying to think of a way that we didn't have to put my son, you know, it's hard to get help in the fall when we're harvesting. How to not have my son on a drill, drilling every acre of cover crops. And, you know, that's expensive. Even if it's your own tractor and drill, sure. uh, the wear and tear on the tires, the time that you've got your son out there versus running the dryer or hauling corn, uh, and then the chopping up of those tires and the drill and the gauge wheels. I said, there's got to be a better way. How can I do it combining? So I laid awake a lot at night and I came up with the idea of putting an air seeder on my head. Well, it worked great. I didn't have to modify everything, anything after my first try. Now we've expanded to putting two of them on our draper head and we have one big one on our corn head. So they're easy to fill. We put on about 13 pounds an acre of cover crop and it's exclusively annual ryegrass and turnips where we're going for beans and then the nitro mix for nitrogen where we're going to corn. Interestingly enough, I've been researching about trying to get a conservation innovation grant to work with the local machine shop to build one that would be a prototype to go on heads where it'd be very low profile, go all the way across the top of the head, be painted the same color so you couldn't hardly even tell it was on there. But it works so good, especially down here in the southern part of the Corn Belt because our falls are long and warm and our springs are warm. So we get a lot of growth by just getting the seed on right at harvest. And uh, so it's it's sort of an environmentally conservation-friendly way of putting it on because you're not spending additional fuel, you're not using a lot more machinery, and you can put on what I'd call moderate rates of seeding because it puts it on so accurately that I can keep my seeding costs down in the nine to twelve dollar an acre range. So that's far below what they used to say it costs to put on cover crops. So cover crops is a huge part of our operation and of course it's tricky because when you're growing that much annual ryegrass, that's a lot to handle, that's a lot to kill, that's difficult to plan into at times. So the management needs, skills, and time involved goes way up, but your machinery's cost and fuel go way down. So it's it's really works well on our farm, and I think a lot of farmers ought to try that. Well, you're talking about 9 to $12 an acre seed costs. Our, our recent cover crops benchmark survey showed an average of $34 per acre for seed is what people are putting on. So you're really done. You're about 25% of that. So you've been doing really well. Part of that is that I order it in bulk and it's delivered straight from out west. So they bring it on the semi pre-mixed. It's mm -hmm. in bulk bags. So we use a seed tender to fill our cedars. So we're getting it at a very 
you know, competitive cost, and then we're keeping our seating rate down, and then we contribute hardly any cost to the seating cost. So those combination of factors help us keep our seating costs down. Right. Well, when you look at no-till and the economic impact that it has, and I'd like you for just a minute to forget all the environmental-friendly benefits of no-till, but what do you think you're putting in the bank because you're no-tilling versus using conventional or minimum tillage? You got any estimate of what a dollar figure would be? Well, that's that's hard to say because, you know, we we lessen our inputs on fertilizer, but we still pretty aggressively soil test. We grid sample uh, fields that we own or rent from people that we're going to have long term. So we pretty intensively uh, lime and fertilize according to test. But like in our river bottoms where we're not losing soil from sky erosion, we never fertilize with anything but nitrogen and sulfur and we gain soil. So in in that instance, we're very cost effective. Of course, that one trip saves a lot in labor and fuel. And one of the big financial benefits is, or maybe it's just the ability to operate that many acres is is labor is extremely hard to get and keep. And that causes a lot of difficulty in working long hours and weekends and everything. So just the labor part of it helps. Now we have been spending a lot of money on machinery and upgrading. We like the technology on the new equipment. Uh, Yesterday, I just traded for a lot newer and better sprayer because the sprayer is kind of a bottleneck in our operation because of, uh, you know, you have to get it killed. You have to do it well. It has to be timely and it can affect your yields if you don't. So that sprayer was $225,000. So, you know, I don't think our machinery cost is substantially lower, but we do run a pretty nice line of equipment to try to cover that many acres. Another thing that that causes us to maybe not run as efficiently as others is this is a very progressive farming area. It's a very big produce area. Cash rents are through the roof of the produce people will pay $500 an acre to grow melons and so forth. So that makes us very spread out. The opportunity to rent ground, if it's 40 miles away, we'll do it because land is hard to to come by. So, you know, being real spread out cuts cuts back on the efficiency. But if you're only moving a drill and a sprayer and you're not moving other equipment, it it helps make it possible. Uh, Those of us that graduated from college and lived through the 80s, those were difficult times. Now, with good commodity prices and good yields and keeping our costs down, it's just a breath of fresh air to finally break through where you've got to worry about income taxes and not how you're going to pay. One of the things that that makes my cost a lot more than others is if I've been a heavy investor in farmland and land in general. So, you know, you've got to clear a lot of profit to be able to make those principal payments. So sure. am I flush with cash? No. 
but I have acquired a lot of land. So I own about 4,000 acres of ground, but only about 2,500 of it is tillable. So, you know, I've bought and sold a lot of land. So anytime there's a land auction, whether it's forest or wetlands or, or developable land, I'm always interested and farm real estate help me make it through some of the difficult times. So I've sold a lot of land over the years and you always regret it. You always say, why did I sell that piece? Right. But you know, as a friend of mine told me, you can't make money in real estate if you fall in love with your land. And that was exactly. good advice. Right, right. So that has been part of my success is going to every auction and knowing when to say no and knowing when this is a good buy. So, right. so that's been part of the formula. Right. Well, when we talk to other no-tillers about what the value of no-till is, there's there's no easy answer. Some people will tell you it's worth an extra $90 an acre. You got others that are $30 an acre. So there's really no one figure you can toss out, even though I'd like to come up with one. But You know, Frank, so many people ask that question. And for me, that's way down. And when you ask that question to speakers or panels, that's always way down on the list. The, the love of the land, the willingness to take care of the land, the willingness to build your land up and have your heirs or your sons and daughters have the ground better. Even, even like in my case, just a, a spiritual belief that, that we're here to take care of the land those things are way up on the list. And right. if I don't make a lot of money, I don't care. My happiness comes from looking outside like today and it's pouring down rain and there's no water coming off my field. It's building soil and it's uh, taking care of the water and water quality. Those things mean the most to me, whether I'm getting rich at it or not, I am. I'm spiritually, mentally, uh, I'm getting rich. So happiness from farming is the most important thing. And I right. get it. Well, one of the new things you've tried in recent years, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but seeding green, right? Yeah. So it's worked great and it's, and it's not worked great. So, you know, part of you, a common thread among us that sort of, our leading edge on no-till and cover crops is the willingness to fail to find success. So every year I've got fields where I went, I made a mistake here and it's cost me. But other fields I've learned how to do it better. So we're always on that leading edge. And if you're sure. on the leading edge of, of trying things and planting green is one of them. So what would be an example this year? I let a lot of my beans from going to the no-till conference. I let a lot of my beans grow up into the cover crop before I ever sprayed it. And it looked fabulous. But in fact, what's happened is this year, and it's not just me, it's been an all-out attack from bulls. So sure. we've spent the last several days planting back into those holes and spreading bait and so forth. So it's been a bowl attack this year. <laughs> right. Last year I planted into a lot of big, tall, mature annual ryegrass and it was the highest green. It looked like a prairie hmm. and it was my highest yielding corn. This year we did it again on a rental farm 
And in some areas, the voles attacked. In some areas, we didn't get a perfect stand. So it's going to cost me a little on that farm. But last year, I had a complete disaster because I planted my non-GMO corn right after baling my haylage. And we couldn't get the annual ryegrass killed well enough with a grass herbicide because it's non-GMO. That corn suffered in yield. This year, we baled the haylage and waited a week and let it all green back up and killed it with 44 ounces of glyphosate. And it's half the size of everybody else's corn. I think it may be my highest yielding corn. It is gorgeous and it's very uniform and the stand is perfect. So, so you learn. Last year, I, it hurt me. This year, I've learned from my mistake and it looks very, very good. And I've got a thousand bales of wrapped high quality hay sitting along the edge of the field. So you're essentially double cropping. I've exactly. got enough hay right. now for three years. So, uh -huh. so that's, that's a good example of how if you let failure stop you, then you're not going very far in this adventure you have to remember that when we worked the ground it turned off hard as concrete and you could trying to rotary hole and it broke its necks off so you know you learn and in, and in this field you're many times on the cutting edge and what works best on your land you just have to discover that and what works best with your family and your equipment and your temperatures and your humidity and moisture and so forth so you know, it's really fun, but it's a it's sort of a dangerous path you're taking because the cost of production is so high. Right. Well, sometimes you can learn more from your failures than you do your successes. I learn the most when I go to the National No-Till Conference and you're around people that have a lot of experience. So yeah. I always go and go to one talk and I hear somebody say something. And I go, that just paid for the conference. One thing right. in that talk, that's going to mean so much because I would have never figured that out my entire farming career. This person figured it out. Marion Calmer is an, is an example. He helped me, not by telling me what to do, but I went to his talk and he talked about all the residue should go through your corn head, not through your combine. Mm -hmm. That's what led me to putting cover crop on under the snouts before the corn comes through the snapping rollers. So see, right there, he gave me a pathway to this, this very efficient way I now put on cover crops. And it right. was his knowledge that helped me get there. Right. Well, for our listeners, let's tell them what the, today is. Today is July 1. And you just said it's raining cats and dogs at your place. And the other day you told me that there were 10 to 12 inches of rain fell in Bloomington, which is not too far from you. So what's been the result of that, all this rain on your place this, this spring and summer? It's been terrifying. <laughs> uh, when you farm river bottoms and when my neighbors farm river bottoms, you can imagine uh, the terror, and the terror is almost hourly because we all go to the hydrologic prediction service. And I've already been there this morning with this rain. So the risk of flooding uh, is 
so great with a rain like that that, you know, the first phone call I got was from a friend of the next county up. Uh, he's just in his 20s, bought his first land, and it's in the river bottoms. And the week before, you know, that kind of rain, he called me up and goes, we're going to lose a thousand acres. And I knew I was in trouble, but my neighbors, you know, they have this three times. But if I lose, I could lose a thousand acres, but if I lose 500 acres of corn, imagine at these prices and at the kind of yields, it was fabulous corn. It's tossling right now. What, what the potential loss was. And people say, well, you got crop insurance. Well, if you've been flooded and had claims like 11 out of the last 15 years, your average yield is the minimum. Sure. So you're getting 65% of 90 bushel an acre and paying a huge premium. And if there's any corn left, the high yielding corn will make up the yield or the amount of bushels where you probably won't even have a claim and you'll have lost 50, 60% of the crop. So the result is it got out in mine, it got in 80 or 90% of it, and these bottoms below my house, then went right back down. So we just got to see how much corn did it kill, how much corn did it stunt, and how much corn is in good shape. But my dad went 19 years without losing a crop down there. We we regularly lose it. We farm as though we're going to lose it. So late applications of nitrogen would be a, uh, uh, an example of how we try to manage this flood risk, uh, only buying corn or beans that they guarantee a hundred percent replant on the seed. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've got a plan that you're going to get flooded and, and we often do. So the intensity of rainfall events, the, the degrading of the watershed. When I say that there's Indiana, like my County only has, 10% of its woodlands left, uh, the ditching, the concrete, the highways, the development, it's just everything adds up. So, you know, you can you can look at the records and the river comes up much faster, much higher than it used to just do these waves. Uh, in one day, it can easily jump 10 foot and it did the other day. Wow. So how much did I lose? I don't think I lost as much as I, well, for one thing, the crest was two foot under what they initially projected. That's why we look at it every hour. You know, six inches can be hundreds of acres. Well, if they, if it actually flooded only three foot deep instead of five foot deep, of course, less land went underwater. But still, in the, uh, the one farm I have, I didn't lose any. The farm below my house down here, uh, it got in 80% of it. How much it kills, I'm guessing 40% of it. But we'll just see. But that's the kind of risk we now face. Frank, the answer to that is, is at the top of the watershed. That's, that's what I learned from a lady that used to do a lot of research on the White River from Indianapolis. And she says, levees, two-stage ditches, uh, dredging, all of those things are not cost effective. You have to start at the top of the watershed. That's where water infiltration, all this water that's now falling, and we probably won't get another rain rest of summer, 
all this water that's that's coming down today needs to go into the soil profile not into the river so you know no-till and cover crops soil health is the answer to my problems and these flooding problems that happen across the u.s so on this you said you had a field where you may lose 40 percent will you replant leave it alone or what crop insurance is the key there and how crop insurance is interpreted and it can vary from from adjuster to adjuster but Mostly, I guess my answer is you can't go back behind soybeans with soybeans or they count against your loss. Used to, they said, after July 15th, we don't care what you do. So on July 16th, we all raced out there and planted soybeans. Mm-hmm. And and now my company says you can't plant soybeans after soybeans or it comes off of your loss. So I was heavy in corn this year. I may go in in the low areas with some Spectrum 85-day corn because Mm -hmm. we have a duck hunting business. So we may go in with that in the low areas, but most of it will probably go back to soybeans where there was corn. And so that's a process where you plant 10 acres and wait two or three days and then plant 40 acres. It's, It's going down but it's in the lowest spots on your farm. So you can't just replant it all. It's it's a waiting game and a replant game. And so we've got a long road ahead of us when we thought we were done spraying, <laughs> side dressing, and, and right. we're not done. We're just getting ready to do it over again. Will you have any uh, herbicide restrictions on corn versus soybeans changing a crop or not? Very insightful. So the dicamba restrictions are in now. Mm-hmm. So these bottoms are loaded with water hemp and liberty. You can't find liberty. So that's the first thing, you know, me and my neighbors are talking about is what are you going to plant? But what are you going to spray it with? Because water hemp comes up all summer long and we go in there and no-till them fields and burn it down with Roundup or, you know, something like that. But the restrictions on what we can, it'll be solid water hemp. It'll be hard to see the soybeans if you let them get very big. And you got to effectively stop the water hemp or you're not going to grow much. And with these now, uh, the deadline has passed. I think it was uh, June 20th on using dicamba. So, it's going to be tricky what you'll even use on herbicides. But I use her. This is another trick. We, I use Zidua because Zidua can be sprayed on the crop. It can be sprayed for corn or beans. So where I've had corn and there's no worry about can you plant beans back. We plan on planting beans back when we lose the crop. So again, we alter our herbicides so that we can get back in there with soybeans with no with no worry about impacting the soybeans. But as you just stated, there's there's a lot of factors that now have to be considered on what you plant, will you plant it, and what will you use for herbicides to, to stop the weeds. We'll come back to Frank and Ray in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Martin Industries, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Since 1991, Martin Industries has designed, manufactured, and sold 
leading agriculture equipment around the world. Known for Martin Till planter attachments, the company has expanded to include a five-step planting system, closing wheel systems, twisted drag chains, fertilizer openers, and more in their lineup. Their durable and reliable planter attachments are making it possible for more and more farmers to plant into higher levels of residue. For more information about Martin Industries, visit them at www.martintill.com. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-T-I-L-L.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. Since some people have asked about the future of no-till, I'm saying that over the next several decades, no-till may become the world's conventional farming practice. It offers terrific soil protection with a continuous residue cover, minimum soil disturbance, more diverse rotations, and the expanded use of cover crops. Keeping the soil covered with living plant roots all year long helps control erosion, increases economic returns, improves soil health, and will help overcome many climate change concerns. Further adoption of no-till can make worldwide food production truly sustainable while regenerating soil health, increasing productivity from the world's remaining cropland, and improving both air and water quality. Now let's get back to Frank Lesser and Ray McCormick. Well, we've pretty much covered what you're doing and everything. And to be honest with you, you're the first person in my No-Till Influencers and Innovators podcast series that I've interviewed twice. And the real reason I wanted to talk to you this morning was because of your passion for wetlands and what's been going on in Indiana and how you've been really excited about it and darn near starved yourself for two weeks. So let's talk about the wetlands and how you got involved and got fed up and what's happened since then and the importance of this. And I, what I really like, want, like to talk to you about and let others know about is your, your big passion for everything, cover crops, no-till, but especially wetlands that seem to have hit a sore point with you. <laughs> yeah, you know, Frank, to make uh, all I want to do is make a difference and you know, back in the 80s, the wetlands became a very hot issue. And so I used to work for uh, help quell unlimited with quail habitat. Well, then sure. the wetlands issue and then and then no-till came along, you know, and that's how we met. So I started speaking on no-till. So, you know, I tended to gravitate towards the issues where I thought I could make the most difference and where somebody would pay for the plane ticket, you mm-hmm. know, so, sure. but, uh, I was doing things just because I loved wildlife and we have a lot of river bottoms. I began plugging off pipes and trying to do things in the winter to get as many birds and wildlife on our farm as possible. And I entered the farming in the flyways contest in successful farming magazine and won the national contest well that was the springboard by which other organizations and groups started asking me to speak up on behalf of the protection of wetlands and and at that time the 85 farm bill and, and richard luger our senator was the author of the conservation provisions of the farm bill uh swamp buster became a big issue and the value of protecting wetlands so that sent me to washington dc over and over again and then as i met more biologists and so forth and i got working with dave hudak with the u.s fish and wildlife service i began to learn more and more 
about migratory birds and the value of wetlands and and it was a classic case of build it and they will come so when i started either flooding fields that we had harvested or started building wetlands all these birds in our flyway started landing and, and of course that inspires you and right. so i i did more and more and and the result of that is that i've helped I've either restored or helped restore thousands upon thousands of acres. I helped Maurice Wilder out of Clearwater, Florida, restore the goose pond. He gave me the power of attorney, and it's about the second biggest wetland restoration in the history of the United States, and it's in the county above me. And so it's a monstrous wetland in which, you know, there was fierce opposition from the community and from farmers and so forth, but it had bankrupted 11 farmers who thought they could tame it and farm it. So sure. we got it put back and now it's making an impact on North American bird migrations and birds have landed there that have never been seen in the United States before. So, you know, that was an example of a huge wetland being restored, but on my ground, we'll hold water back in, on there and so forth. So we'll have areas where whooping cranes land every year and stay on my ground and so forth. So that and, and, and learning about the value of wetlands and getting all this sort of appreciation form and money. You know, back when things were really tough, I was uh, buying land and restoring wetlands. And, and wetlands can be forested. So a lot of farmers in my area are now using the CREP program and the WRP program in these river bottoms. They're sick of being flooded. So there's a lot of tree planting going on. And I did a lot of tree planting, but I also specialized in building wetlands. And then I got to working with Duke Energy and doing their wetland restorations to mitigate their impacts. And I've worked with utilities and dot and so forth so it became a business for me but it's a it's sure. doing something you love to do so i bought dirt pans and became very specialized in being able to find the land show them how to put the wetland there and building the wetland so it became a huge job in the summer july august and september of moving dirt and building wetlands so i did a lot of that and honestly made a lot of money at it and then sold off a lot of those properties because people said, would you ever sell that property? And I said, heck yes, I would. <laughs> and they buy them and now their families recreate on them and, and right. hunt on them and they enjoy them. So I didn't hang on to a lot of them. And then I helped other farmers who said, I want to do this on my ground. And it wasn't just 20 acres it was hundreds of acres and they would say we want you to build ours so mm -hmm. off i'd go two or three counties away to go build wetland so i began to get a very high appreciation indiana was about 20 to 25 percent wetlands when the settlers got here so it was a big wetland state and 86% of them have been drained. So there's a lot of opportunity to put them back. Right. So I'm not a guy that, that tries to figure out how to drain wetlands or how to get a tile in there. I'm just the opposite. I seek out properties where you can restore wetlands. 
and help put that sponge back, help put that valuable resource back. So I, I just have a love for wetlands. And we've seen a lot of progress in this country. A lot of people, even farmers, landowners, have grown to appreciate the value of wetlands. And the Farm Bureau says they're valuable and so forth. And that led us to this winter when our, the past administration, and I had worked on WOTUS. I worked with the Obama administration and the EPA. I helped them with the rollout of WOTUS. Well, that caused a huge pushback on wetlands protection. It was a very negative impact on protecting wetlands. And so Trump took away part of the authority under the wetlands law and gave it to the state. So isolated wetlands, wetlands that don't have a, a significant nexus are not directly connected to a navigable water. He took that protection away and gave it to the states. Indiana then said, we're not going to protect any of our wetlands. And Indiana was one of the states that had a very good uh, wetland law that had been in place, I think, eight years or something like that. Well, the sure. legislature said, we're going to take that away and we're going to take all protection away. Well, that sent me and lots of conservation organizations on a war path to stop it. And we failed. They passed it. Now, they didn't pass the original bill, which would have taken away all protection, but they did take away some of IDEMS, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management's authority on certain wetlands. So Indiana's wetlands now laws do not parallel the Army Corps of Engineers laws. So all of this stuff, WOTUS and Supreme Court rulings and all of this stuff makes it confusing. It makes it difficult for farmers to understand what they can and can't do. If you have somebody that you know, like the companies I work with, like Duke, that doesn't want to impact the wetland, somebody has to make a determination what is and isn't a wetland, and that's uh, and which ones have jurisdiction, or if there is jurisdiction, and that that's what WOTUS was determining where jurisdiction ended. Mm -hmm. And now in Indiana, it's which ones do we protect and not protect. So it's a uh, it's a confusing uh, and difficult to understand unless you've been around it a while, just what these nuances mean. Yeah. So right during planting season, April and May is when this really came up and the Indiana legislature was about to pass it and you really got involved and you went on a to make your point, which you did in a great way, you went on a hunger strike, right? Yep. Tell us about it. Well, well, Frank, you can you can tell by our conversation that I'd worked a lot of my adult life on this issue. Sure. And 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 we have made good progress. I mean, people understand the value of wetlands. Farmers now know you got to be careful and not just go out and drain wetlands. So so we'd made a lot of progress. And this didn't take away swamp buster. But it signaled a reversal in the direction that Indiana was headed. And Indiana is a good conservation state. But, you know, as far as our nutrient reduction plan for the Gulf, this sure. is a reversal on this. 
on clean water Indiana. This is a reversal in direction and on and on. So this signaled instead of progressing on cover crops and no-till and and crap planting these trees in, in floodplains and trying to keep nutrients out of the Gulf. You know, Indiana is the biggest contributor per acre to the Gulf. And this is a reversal. And that's what alarmed me. And, and with all the passion I had, I said, what, what can get the most attention? How can I raise the consciousness of the uh, of the constituents of these legislators in Indiana. So I decided to do the most extreme thing I could do was to stop eating. And mm -hmm. So I did. <laughs> and then I posted every night what was going on. So I got on, I got on Facebook, which I'm not a big Facebook person, but I got on every evening and talked about the latest development so people could follow what was going on. Yeah, and I followed you for a week or two on when you were doing these nightly nights. They were really interesting and fascinating. So you really didn't eat any food. You took some juices and vitamins, but that's about it for two weeks? Yeah, I didn't eat any food, but I one of my partners in conservation, Dr. Thompson at Monroe City, uh, I went down there and the lady says, hi, Ray. Uh, what's, what do you need today? I said, well, I'm on a hunger strike. She <laughs> looks up at me, you know, and so I went into his office and he comes in and he looks down at the chart. He goes, you're going on a hunger strike. Why are you doing that? Yeah. So I explained just as I explained to you what I was doing. He goes, okay, you can, this is what you got to do. Uh -huh. And he says, I'll start calling people. So his patients and farmers came in his office and so forth, and he was calling in. So he got involved and said, okay, I understand. This is what you got to do. You got to get this this protein power and mix it up with this drink because you can't go without nutrients. Right. So you can go without eating, and that's not all that uncommon if you've had major stomach or intestinal operations and so forth you can go a long time without eating but you can't go without any potassium and, and so forth so right that's what i did so i started losing uh, losing weight and boy was i hungry i offered my <laughs> wife a thousand bucks for a potato chip and she wouldn't give it to me so yeah, i was hungry but i actually felt very good and and i know people now that say that that's part of their diet is fasting. But, you know, uh, I begin to feel very healthy. You know, I wasn't eating butter pecan ice cream every night before I went to bed. And so right. I began to feel pretty, pretty chipper. Once I started taking in some nutrients, when I was only drinking water, I was going downhill fast now. Right. So how long, how many days did you do this for? Uh, 15. Right. I, I When I was getting it, looking at your Facebook uh, posts late in the week, I mean, it wasn't going well with the legislature and you weren't eating. And you, you got to looking a little and you were trying to no-till corn and soybeans. It looked a little tired some nights. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we're trying to, you know, that was one of the negative things about it is, yeah, I felt good. But, boy, you'd wear out fast working right. hard. Right. So right. and and quite frankly, you know, I felt I felt very good mentally, mm -hmm. but 
I couldn't think as quickly and you know I'm you know how farmers are snap decisions and how to fix this your right. brain kind of starts slowing down where it wasn't yeah. as easy to remember numbers or or what variety you just put in so it started affecting my ability to think yeah. And people would say, well, he didn't think very well anyway, so, <laughs> you know, but but there were some impacts, but it wasn't that big a sacrifice, and it didn't draw as much attention as I hoped it would because, you know, once they'd passed it, it went to the governor's desk, who I know sure. him, he's from my hometown, and so 103 organizations, like in two days, called up and signed on to, and this was conservation organizations, religious organizations, uh, uh, you know, just uh, conservation officers and on and on, 103 groups emailed him and and signed on to a letter opposing signing the bill. Well, he did. So there really wasn't a lot I could do at that point. It had become law. And Frank, Today, July 1st, is the day that the law kicks in. Hmm. So this is the start of it. Yeah. So what happens now? Uh, is there still federal regulation of these wetlands, or does Indiana need to go back and change the law, or what's going on? Well, they set up a task force, and I tried to get on it, but as you know me from seeing me speak and so forth they said heck no we're not going to put him on there so uh but there's a task force that's been set up of 14 different organizations farm bureau and the soil and water conservation uh, districts of indiana and and some watershed groups and they're going to look at it and come up with suggestions but the problem is setting up a task force after you've passed the bill is is doing it ass backwards you know you should be getting recommendations so it's very confusing right now idem has not come up with their interpretation of how they will operate under the law so they're trying to put out guidance so we're sort of in limbo right now because the law's kicked in but how idem will interpret that has not been determined so we're sort of in this fuzzy area right now Frank, this was mostly driven by the Home Builders Association. So that's part of my concern is because of the flood water we're getting and so forth that the home builders got this opening to build homes in the donut counties, the counties around Marion County, Annapolis, where there's rapid growth, and that's mm-hmm. the watershed I'm in. Sure. Uh, they've got the thumbs up. Uh, to develop in these wetlands. Well, you know, what could go wrong? More flooding and homes being built where they shouldn't be. But that was the money behind the big drive for this wetlands law. So it wasn't agriculture pushing for it, though the Farm Bureau uh, supported it. It was mainly the Home Builders Association that, that really forced legislators to look at this and and come to this decision under federal law right now they're you know uh federal law still is the same the army corps of engineers and what they do is the same except they don't at this point look at isolated wetlands that's the states but you know things like uh 
clearing ditches or pushing fill into a wetland, that could easily get you in trouble. I called Washington, D.C. to Mr. Outlaw, that's his name, in Washington, D.C., because I was told that he's the expert in Washington, D.C. on the farm bill and swamp buster. So I called him and got some clarification on what farmers could and couldn't do under the conservation provisions of the farm bill, specifically swamp buster. So, you know, that's still in place and any farmer that drains or fills wetlands is in jeopardy of losing his crop insurance or his government payments or conservation program uh, enrollment and so forth. And, And that's mainly farmed wetlands and prior converted wetlands. And that goes back to 1985 when the farm bill kicked in and the conservation provision so if you're doing something or have have done something without you know getting approval that it's not a wetland or what you're able to do you're in jeopardy of losing those payments if it's something in a farmed wetland situation if you dug a ditch or something and pre-1985 you're okay but if it's classified as a farmed wetland and that designation would be determined by nrcs if it's a farmed wetland you can't enhance the drainage so if it still has the characteristics of a wetland you can maintain the ditch or the tile but you can't enhance the drainage if it was prior converted to 1985. In other words, you tiled it all out, you dug the ditch or whatever, and it drained it and took away the characteristics of a wetland. It's considered prior converted, and whether you farmed it or not, it still carries that uh, prior converted designation. Now, I'm not an expert on this. I don't drain wetlands, but farmers should be careful and get consultation not only with uh, NRCS, but they could they could get a private consultant to look at an area if you're thinking about doing major drainage. And so don't take my word for it, get the consultation of a professional because you know the government payments, just like in the past couple of years, they've kept us going. And, and on my farm, conservation payments are a huge part you know that it's it's two hundred thousand dollars last year of government payments that could be crp crep you know the the restoration of a wetland but it's you know it's it's so big on my farm that the banker is always going why aren't everybody else doing this because it's a significant conservation is a significant part of my income on our home farm which is now houses at 30 miles north of detroit in michigan we had a uh, probably a 10 or 12 acre muck field and it it drained into a lake maybe a quarter mile away or so but anyway there was field tile in there and those field tile must have been put in in the late 30s early 40s mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. but uh, the field tile got messed up and the muck no longer drained and so it turned into practically a lake. And one time mm-hmm. I was in Washington and I asked about this and I said, I said, what's going on now? And they said, well, now it's a wetland. And I said, well, what if we just went in and fixed the field tile? Nope, it's still a wetland. So, I mean, we weren't going to do this. I was just asking out of curiosity, but uh, just to 
fact that the field tile finally failed turned it into a wetland. So I don't know uh, specifically, but that is a great example of where farmers shouldn't make the determination on their own. Right, and, exactly. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't go off the word of somebody in Washington, D.C. So a, a site visit, right. they may say, this is a farmed wetland because this tile was put in pre-85. Yeah. You can maintain the tile, but you can't enlarge the tile or make more tiling out there. So it right. sounds to me like it's taken on the characteristics of a wetland, so you could only do what had been done right. pre-85, but please don't take my word for it. Well, it's beneficial but, now to the subdivision because it turned into a pond or a lake, which increased the value of the land, land to be built on. So. so, so Frank, if it were me, I'd have been trying to get it in a program and getting the appraised value out of the property, and you'd have been a rich man there and you've been the hero because you had a wetland. That's how I approach it, <laughs> is uh, they pay well yeah. for putting back wetlands. So if there's a wetland there, instead of me trying to figure out how I can drain it and farm it, right. I'm trying to figure out how I can make the down payment on the farm by just restoring the wetland. Right. And sometimes I've paid for the farm because in many instances, Farmers were so negative about extremely wet farm or something, they wouldn't hardly bid on it. Right. So I would buy them, and they appraised far above what I paid. And so you get paid the appraised value to put it back. So if the average appraised value in your county for farmland is $4,200 an acre, and you paid $22 an acre, you're going to make $2,000 an acre by putting that wetland back. Wow. And in my case, I did the construction work. Mm -hmm. And then I leased it for duck hunting. And then I ended up selling it. So, you know, working with Mother Nature instead of against Mother Nature. You know, right. Frank, you've heard the saying, you throw Mother Nature out the window, she'll come back kicking in the door. Right. So I try to work with Mother Nature instead of against her. Right. Hey, this has been great. It's been fascinating what you're doing and learning all the details and the passion you have for different things like no-till and wetlands and cover crops. And uh, this will be most interesting to our listeners. So I appreciate you doing this, Ray. Frank, we'll see you this January right. at the National No-Till Conference. Right. Appreciate it. You take care, my friend. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. We recently did an item talking about the use of colders on no-till planters and how the use of colders has decreased over the years. A reader asked about sharpening colders as needed. If the soil is dry and hard, then colders may not need to be sharpened as often as when soil is wet and soft. But how sharp is sharp? Colders that are too sharp will chip or bend easily, so the best bet is to keep them sharpened to around a 45 degree angle.
thanks to Frank Lesseter and Ray McCormick for today's conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Martin Industries, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.